RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. It's my great pleasure to welcome back to our program, Dr. Anna Goodwin. And um, Anna, it's good to have you back. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you, Paul. It's always a pleasure to be here. Um, I always enjoy your your audience and um, enjoy people with that are in a like-minded space. No, that's great. Okay, here we go. The politics of cancer. Mm, okay. Yeah, it's, it's, what, uh, what, what does that mean? Well, you know, like um, the late Charles Krauthammer said that if we if we don't get our politics right, we can't live in a free society. And so um, I've spent the last 30 odd years contemplating cancer and um, treating people who have cancer and recognizing that by and large, my career had become sort of an ambulance at the bottom of a cliff. And uh, I, I think Glenn has had a similar epiphany with, with his practice and realizing that too often we're, we're addressing disease processes that could have been prevented along the way had we been you know, more proactive. The things that have happened in particular the last few years, I, I think we can draw no other conclusion than you know, at the very least, someone didn't care whether or not they were actively trying to harm us. Um, we failed to implement the precautionary principle in our public policy, and we failed to uphold basic tenets of, of human rights and human dignity and human health. And we're clearly the worst for it with our economy and our excess mortality rate. And we've totally... Um, abrogated the precautionary principle with re with regard to our um, medical um, intellectual property interests and and agricultural property interests that are coming into the fore and we're we're boldly going where we have no business going and um, both the, both of the major parties both labor national acts and the greens, we're all complicit with this public policy that has, has led us down this path to onerous debt, wiping out generations of wealth, destroying the health of this nation, destroying the trust in the health professions, as well as in the government itself. And so it comes down to each one of us as individuals understanding our health as, as best we can and understanding that our day-to-day -day choices, even if they are a bit boring, are really the best way forward rather than abdicating our, the control of our health and our outcomes, and in particular, something as potentially risky as cancer when, when it goes amok. I mean, you're in a situation where you've been cured and many people can be cured. There's more hope now than ever before, but there's also more cancer than ever before. And I would dare say that if the policies presently contemplated by both of our um, major parties are implemented, we will see nothing but a, an exponential rise in cancer over the next five years, such to such a degree that it, it will likely outstrip our ability to care for these patients. And, you know, the average cost of some of the newer drugs that are contemplated for the treatment of cancer far exceeds $100,000 a year per person. Yeah. And that's oftentimes for 
a relatively small gain in survival, usually in the realm of four to six months. Some really exceptional drugs, we might see survival gains of 10 months, but most of these are not cures for people who have advanced cancer. Yeah, the, the, the similarity in what you're saying about, you know, what we found out about, you know, <laughs> what they thought about us, they might not like us, you said, um, through the COVID thing. And and then sort of looking for a similarity in the and the the attitude, the official attitude to cancer or the political attitude to cancer. It seems that to me that there's a there's a common thing here. That is through through COVID, and we all know a lot more now than we well, the average Joe like me knows a lot more now than I did at the start of it for and number one is that there were other ways of 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 dealing with it rather than absolutely it, you know vaxxed um, up and that it turns out that basic things like um you know a, a reasonably simple healthy diet um and uh, avoiding certain food groups and and all that knowledge is out there and and people required a little bit of discipline in their lives to carry that out going against habits that are long formed it was easier to convince people to take this method than to show them that you know you, you could empower yourself and do certain things to to be healthier yourself without having to go down this route cancer seems to be the same thing it's i guess ambulance at the bottom of the cliff or whatever is that there's a there's an unwillingness to say in public out loud to people you can you can kind of control this yourself i mean obviously you have to have time to put that in place but there's no Absolutely. messaging along those lines. And it's like there's a, a kind of like a, a shying away of, of any any message that involves a, like a personal discipline that you might have to have. You know, I suppose people don't like to look like they're waving the finger or telling what people what to do. I, I think the thing is, um, you know, there's a, a real there's two things to that, Paul. And, and you raise a very, very important issue. And, and, and that is that, you know, the more we give up our responsibility that's for what's ours, yeah. and the more we allow other people that domain, we are allowing them to control us. And the government actually wants to control us. So the more that they can step into a place that we're uncomfortable with, whether that's a matter of, of self-discipline, whether it's a matter of different food choices, whether it's a matter of exercising 30 minutes per day mm. or you know, not having the instant gratification with the your favorite snack. I struggle with that myself. Um, and, and we all do. We all are human and we all have these choices. And sometimes we want the quick fix. But there's also the reticence as well, because we don't want to blame people for their circumstances. We certainly don't want to blame victims. But we can look at at occupations. We can look at the health of our waterways. We can look at the health of our food. And and by and large, the Environmental Protection Agency and Food Standards Australia New Zealand, they've become sort of the rubber stamping organization. When, when something is good for a corporation or it might involve regulating a corporation that's going to bring jobs to a community, we, we fail the environment every time. And New Zealand is literally littered 
with these public policy decisions that have spanned decades and successive governments. You know, I see a lot of them here in the Bay of Plenty where industries come in, they fouled the rivers, they fouled the soil, there's a high cancer rate and people that are in that area, but the, the, the rates payers are left to pick up the cleanup bill and the people there are just, you know, we don't talk about the environmental degradation that led to their cancer and the persistent organ organic pollutants that contributed to their endocrine disruption over time that led to their mutations that led to their cancer. We don't talk about those things because we got jobs in the community for the time being. And I think we have to, for the sake of humanity, we have to take a longer look at this because what the politicians of New Zealand are presently contemplating is the rapid upstaging up or ramping up of, of allowing untested um, intellectually patentable technology into our soil and into every other capacity that we have. Um, sorry about that. Um, so, so we're allowing this into our environment. We have no idea what the consequences are going to be. We have no idea how our governments plan to monitor that. We, we have no reason to have confidence that this monitoring will be in the favor of humanity. We have every reason to believe that just like these other regulatory entities, um, most of the corporations will be given a pass. And I think this is a catastrophic thing because as, as Glenn was talking about, the, the human genes have not changed in 40,000 years. And yet we've introduced almost a million different chemicals in our agricultural sector, in our food sector. And all of these things have unknown causes, unknown impacts. And, you know, we're supposed to be abiding by the precautionary principle in this space. And, and the EPA is not even testing many of the pesticides. I mean, clopilarid has very little data on it. Um, we know a lot about glyphosate and the IARC has declared it to be a, a probable carcinogen. And yet, you know, we're, we're still using it. We're still in love with our roundup here. Um, it's used as a desiccant on our cereal grains, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these things are fairly new to us. And then we start adding genetically engineered species to, to our foods that, you know, we, we've had 40,000 years of, of a relationship with our genes and food and the environment. And when we start over the this relatively compressed time frame, introducing entire new genomes associated with food, you know, now we've got the cauliflower mosaic virus that's sitting there with a certain gene sequence in a corn plant. And, you know, your body sounds the alarm when it sees a, a gene sequence or a, a protein that was not there before. And so none of these things are being picked up or monitored appropriately. The standard for genetic engineering is it's, is it substantially similar in composition. So it's not actually, they've not really done feeding trials on any species. It's just released into our food stuff, especially the processed foods, which is why, you know, I think it makes sense for people to avoid processed foods, not just sugar, but most of our cereal grains are, are actually, you know, hitch, they have pesticides hitchhiking. They've got genetically modified oils, genetically modified grains. All of these things find their way into the
the processed foods. I mean, you just about can't get rid of them. I've tried to get various supermarkets to, you know, take the genetically modified soy out of their bread. No, they won't. They won't take the genetically modified canola out. Um, these are all pre-mixed in Australia. It's all approved and it, it's baked into our our breads and cereals. And so this is why people actually feel better when they go gluten-free. They, they feel better because they're not getting the pesticide residues in their gut. Celiac disease only affects 1% of the populace. So if it's truly gluten, we would expect, you know, a gut ache after bread and cereal to be, you know, a relatively minor problem, but yeah. almost everyone feels better when they get off of cereal grains. And that's really what the paleo diet sort of captures in that it's, it's basically just meat, vegetables and seeds and things that have not been tainted with pesticides and genetically modified species. And so basically you just get off cereal grains and you feel better and you have fermented dairy, not regular dairy in the form of, of milk or ice cream as these also have a fair number of hitchhiker chemicals plus endocrine disrupting estrogens and various things that men in particular do not need. Um, one of the most common things I see in my practice is, is, is prostate cancer. Um, New Zealand is, tops out the international, um, database for, there must, there must be a reason for that. There must be. Well, there reason. is, um, most men that, that have prostate cancer tell me they've eaten wheat bix and milk every day of their life for oh, about 50 years and they have, you know, and they have it with toast or they have, you know, and they have their sandwiches for lunch. So they're getting a lot of the inflammatory things that they've denatured their microbiome. And then we have a lot of men who also are orchardists. And, you know, and we have a, a sort of a cavalier attitude of that's she'll be chemicals, right. right? That's chemicals. That's, that's chemicals. They yeah. get a lot of chemicals with the orchard sprays. Yeah. And I have, you know, a number of men who, who tell me that, you know, they used to just stir up the 2,4-D, reach in with their arm when they were mixing up oh, the chemicals yeah. to spray in, in, in the farm. And, yeah. and, and, you know, she'll be right. We, we have a number eight wire mentality about some of these very dangerous chemicals that persist in your body that do change some of your stem cell compartment. And so, you know, we're, we're seeing a whole lot of this. And then, of course, there's the, the role of the, the carbohydrates and sugars in terms of insulin production, because insulin is also a growth hormone. It also upregulates various cancer growth factors. So, you know, the Glenn's talked about the sad diet and, yes. and it, it really is true. It, but it's, we're, we're told that this is a healthy diet by the institutional dietitians. Um, but you know, we, what I see, I mean, you know, I haven't seen this study published anywhere. I've just talked to over 600 Kiwi blokes with prostate cancer. So, you know, wow. what do I know? Um, and they well, all they tell don't, me they they don't the know same. that. I, I know quite a few um, men, you know, uh, with who, who've had or, or still have or just getting prostate cancer. In fact, I was talking with one yesterday. And the assumption is it's just an old man's kind of thing. That's what happens. It's, it's an aging thing. There is no awareness of what you've just told us. I can no, tell it's it's but it's 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 a it's a devastating illness it it is 
It's mm. a, a really horrible disease, especially if, if, you know, it's, it's one of the higher grade varieties and, and we're still learning how to predict who might die of their disease and who might just be an old man with a growth in his prostate cancer, dying of, of a heart attack or a stroke or old age. And so it's, it's very clear that when the disease is, is more aggressive and it happens in men in their fifties and sixties, it's, it's a different biology and needs to be treated much more aggressively and and there's but there's not this awareness and and what one of the things i've observed is when when i get a, a a patient who's been treated and we start worrying about his psa rise i've actually seen when they go on a low carb high fat diet their psa will come down wow i've seen that time and again and it correlates as it would with the loss of belly fat because the belly fat is actually making a lot of estrogens that are actually more drivers of prostate cancer. Most most people don't realize it, but when a man gets over 50, his estrogen levels are usually higher than his wife if she's of a com- comparable age. So <laughs> she's lost her estrogen. He's gained it because he's gained more fat. Hey, his testosterone goes down, his estrogen to, goes up. And that's when away. we start seeing yeah. the spike in prostate cancer. So it's um it's a different way of thinking about things. It's but, interesting um, though, because we've uh, we, we jumped like a ton of bricks on cigarette smoking and everyone got that. It took time. I don't see any difference. No, there's not. But why, why is one acceptable and why is it so easily bought by people and uh, accepted and the other isn't? Well, I think it's because, you know, like Steve Martin said, when, you know, one of his favorite remarks, when someone asks if, if it's okay, if I smoke, he said, Oh, do you mind if I fart? Um, when you smoke, you're actually impacting other people's environment. So, you know, it's 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 more socially unacceptable. No, no. <clears throat> but, but people but, know that it it causes lung problems. They they know absolutely. That you, if you're going to smoke for any length of time or any any quantity, you're going to have problems. They they just absolutely. accept it. They're going to say, well, it, "Oh, I smoke, but I wonder where my lung problems come from." I don't, yeah. I don't understand this. Well, that comes down to, to what actually causes cancer. We have to understand that cancer is an injury response, pure and simple. You know, we start out as one cell, and in the first 10 weeks of gestation, you're growing like a little cancer in your mother's womb, and you make over 10 trillion cells. That's a trillion cells per week. Wow. We can't even count to a trillion. It no. would take us 2,000 years to count a trillion seconds. But now we use that number like like it's going out of style when we talk By about By the way, the debt. U.S. debt is three times that. But okay. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So we need computers to, to get that calculation. But nevertheless, all of these cells are reproducing in your mother's womb the first 10 weeks. And, and during that time, cells are becoming increasingly specialized. From that one cell, we form germ layers that form the skin, the bone, the muscle, and our internal organs. And it turns out that that process is called differentiation. And so those cells become specialized, they form tissues, they form organs. And then that somehow miraculously, I think, evolves into a, a functioning body that can, we can carry with us for 80 years or more. That's incredible. And, That's and, it, and it really, really is pretty amazing. Yeah. So we are conserved, you know, when, when the body is injured, it has to go back into those primitive programs. Like if you injure your skin, what has to happen is you go back to a primitive program where your skin cells originated in an embryonic form and you form a bridge and then those cells close the wound. So cancer is a a wound response 
that's actually gone bad. It was affected by a mutation. It got the wrong signal and it didn't know when to turn off. And those signals are, are actually inflammation. When, when, when something goes into the injury space and it doesn't turn off, it's usually persisting due to inflammation and also a few missing key nutrients because the gene expression of the primitive cell is highly dependent upon methylation signals. The methylation signals, various other signals, um, tell the cell, okay, your job is finished, time to move on, time to settle down, go back and be a stem cell and behave Shut yourself. Shut it off. Shut it off, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's what's supposed to happen. But oftentimes it doesn't happen when we when we are, are enzymes that are required to do that process are not working. Certain of those enzymes require particular minerals, in particular selenium, zinc, manganese, and and magnesium. Those are the four that we know are vital to cancer prevention. Coincidentally, those four are also chelated by glyphosate. So when you take glyphosate in, not only are you wrecking your microbiome because it was patented as an antibiotic, but you're also missing out on these key minerals that are vital for DNA repair. And so, so that should be that should be like a public right there, a public campaign well, on the back of well, buses. It, it, like it take this be. stuff. Take it. Take it. Take it. You know, but we're not getting that in our nutrition. You know, we haven't even looked at the selenium levels in our Brazil nuts. Yes, you can get selenium from, from Brazil nuts, but those studies were done in the nineteen forties. We have no idea if if the selenium content in a Brazil nut is still what it was, you know, sixty or eighty years can ago. Can supplementation be a halfway house though in the meantime? Um I'm not a huge fan of supplements. I think my first go-to is food. Yeah, you know, yeah. you need your green leafies, you need your vegetables, you need good fats, nuts, seeds. I'm, I, I've even offered to New Zealand Beef and Lamb to be their spokesperson because I think a lot of the, the data about meat causing cancer is pure rubbish. It comes right. out of America. Our cows are inflamed. They're feedlotted. They're sitting there miserable, standing in their poo and yeah. eating genetically engineered food. So, of course, right, they're miserable cows. If you Jeez. eat inflamed flesh, it inflames you. And, yeah. and, and that's just how it works. We don't do so, that here, though. We don't do we that. We don't here. do that here. They've tried to bring that in so that our cows would have to eat more genetically modified foods. But New Zealand grass-fed beef and lamb, I don't think it has any link. Well, why to weren't they interested in that, Anna? Why weren't they interested? Uh, I, I think it's because I'm a controversial figure. It'd be perhaps. a huge selling point, wouldn't it? Huge. Well, it should be to have an oncologist say, you know, eat your beef and lamb. It's good for you. I I, I think, you know, it, it, it should be something. That, I mean, I believe in New Zealand farmers. I, I you know, I, I totally know how hard they work and I know the risk that they've taken. And so I'm, I'm all for New Zealand beef and lamb. And I know our dairy farmers work very hard, too. I would like to see them be able to sell their fresh milk at the gate and not have too much you know, government yeah. influence. And if they're doing an organic product and they're 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 doing it right, um, I'm you know, I, I think we yeah. need to support them. I, th- I think our, our pro- produce from our farms is is the envy of the world. This is why everyone wants to emulate it. This is why China wants to take over our dairy sector. Um, can, can, can I just um, personalize this a bit? Because I've had cancer. I had um, uh, HPV, um, um, oral cancer, head and neck, right? Okay. 
and that was 10 years ago and the radiation seemed to to deal with it so i was under the impression i'm not trying to make this about me but i'm just trying to understand how it may have got to that and others will be wondering how they got theirs but i can only speak for me so they told me they that um that was something to do with having that hpv virus and it was quite a common thing in males my age and and it turned out to be you know that that's that's true but um and it, it seems to have been effective the treatment the radiotherapy that i got which was pretty hard at the time but it, it seems to have worked because i'm still here 10 years later now so am i to think that that wasn't just the hpv virus if i think back to how i was feeding myself back then and, and and the history of my diet up to that point that must can i assume that that must have had something to do with it kicking off absolutely absolutely right. and okay. and there are many cofactors that that determine whether someone manifests cancer and i was part of a study when i was in america that looked at the prevention of hpv related illness from um, HPV subtype 11, 16, and 18. And it turned out for cervical cancer that if, if a, a certain level of dietary folate was maintained, even though a person might have the virus, they didn't manifest the disease or, or the dysplasia. Right. So we know that higher doses of folate are protective in that space. You know, that could be, you know, you know, the HPV vaccine has, has caused a fair number of injuries. I've, I've had mixed re, mixed feelings about it. Um, I think on a global scale, it might have prevented more cancers than than um, it caused harm. I, I never but, took it, but I knew someone who'd had, had that vaccine, you know. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, I, I follow a lot of the anti-data, but also the pro-data and having managed a few cases of really bad cervical cancer that didn't go well um you'd almost want to do anything to prevent that because people do suffer greatly um and and so i i think we need to be have more honest discussions i want to see technology evolve in a controlled fashion but i also believe that people need to be empowered to take control of their diet to well, take no one told me anything health, about diet and, and to not abdicate these things to a government that seems to be indifferent about us and our environment right now. So, you know, talking about um, about your particular cancer, you know, HPV is a really nasty virus. It affects two segments of the cell cycle that cause DNA synthesis to be accelerated and also right. cause the cell to not be checked. So it, it blocks two key checkpoints in the cell cycle. So it's a, it's a nasty little piece of work, but almost everyone has HPV. Um, they yeah. discovered that, you know, almost every adult probably carries some of it, but not everybody gets cancer. So another thing I've been quite interested in is the role of mercury. We well, know mercury changes the microbiome, not only of the mouth, but of the gut. So the, the mercury in our amalgams may also um, affect that. I, I've seen a lot of head and neck cancer patients before they have their dental extraction. And on average, they'll have between six and 10 amalgams. I did. Um, Just, you're talking about me again. Yeah. So, and, and we know that what, what does mercury do? Well, mercury comes back right back down to it offloads the enzymes that would be binding to selenium, magnesium, and zinc. And, and it displaces the key 
thing. So it denatures these enzyme systems that we need. So it becomes somewhat of a, a, of a poison to our enzyme systems. We have no biological need for mercury. And unfortunately, we just can't get rid of it. You have to go through quite a bit of detox and chelation to actually get rid of mercury. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, there's those things. And, you know, so those three things, your, your, your diet, the HPV, mercury is a cofactor, um, sugar, sugar also changes the microbiome. And it, as we glycate, that means we add a sugar molecule to gene sequences that actually makes them more primitive. You know, it's, it's amazing that cancer, you know, the more sugar it takes on, the more primitive it gets. So, so I think there's an absolute role for, you know, just being on a somewhat of a low carb, healthy, um, plant-based diet with no one ever mentioned that to me. There was no talk of that at all. And, and, you know, I've been attacked by dietitians in this country for having these discussions with patients because they prefer to just give them insure and which is just more sugar and um, genetically modified soybean oil and canola oil and various things. So, um, it, yeah, the advice to me was don't smoke and hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. That was well, basically smoking it. is a bit of, is another cofactor, you know. That's yeah, and well, I wasn't I smoking just, at the time, so and and, and yeah. vitamin D. You know, if we got people's no vitamin D that. levels up above fifty, I don't think we would see many deaths at all from cancer. It's you so see that that's so easily done. This is what I can't understand. Right, um, you could you could put in place a take vitamin D campaign. You probably have a good proportion of the people persuaded. Oh, I've been in that space for, for 10 years and no one wants to know me. No, I, I, I was on a campaign with Parliament to get people on that as a preventative for serious COVID illness because we know it reduced COVID illness by, you know, 14 fold. Nobody wanted to hear from me because it's it's not going to generate revenue for a corporation. Yeah, but what does a politician care about that? Well, they, I would like to know what they're actually getting from these corporations. Oh, okay. Um, yep. I, I think there must be an inquiry in, in that space. We know that New Zealand, the New Zealand government is Her Majesty Queen and Right of New Zealand. She was sold on the, the New York Stock Exchange as a regular you know, entity. So we have a very strong corporate basis for our governance structure here. And in theory, at least under common law, under the Clearfield Trust Doctrine, we shouldn't be governed by a corporation. A corporation has no more right to govern free people than you or I would have as as individuals to spontaneously declare ourselves to be in charge of of the world. Oh dear, <laughs> <laughs> that's a different discussion, though. It is, um, yeah, yeah, interesting, <laughs> but it may be a different discussion. There's an election coming up. Um, I haven't heard anything, any health policy that goes anywhere near any of this whatsoever at all from anyone. Have I missed something or am I about No, you're absolutely right. Everything that we've heard, you know, first we have everyone that was in parliament the last three years was complicit with the COVID response and with the enforcement of the community vaccine. The, they might not have mandated directly, but they mandated employers to put the squeeze on their employees. It was an outsourcing of mandating. It was an outsourcing of mandate. Mm. But, you know, I've done an official Information Act request and the government, a, a mandate technically has to come from a court of law. And it was confirmed that there was actually no mandate from the government. So, so it was all smoke and mirrors. Really. It was smoke and mirrors, but they basically threatened employers with heavy penalties if they didn't mandate their employees. But none of that would have stood up then. 
it would have not stood up. We just oh, needed to stand up and say no. And we needed to have a, a greater sense of unity in that place to stand up to tyranny as a people. So, so they're willing to force an untried therapy, gene therapy on people, but they're not willing to force vitamin D on people. No, no, it's, it's interesting. Um, but vitamin D is responsible for the regulation of over a thousand different genes. And it's also vital for our immune system. It's, it's, it goes well beyond bone health. It's probably one of yeah. the more important. And we're things. finding that out. We're finding that yeah, out. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, you know, as, as far as these people that were involved with this, you know, whole thing, I have no confidence in them. I don't know why anybody would want them back in parliament. I think we need new faces, new ideas. We need an entrenched bill of rights. We need a full and, you know, unrestrained investigation into what happened and Boy, who gained yeah. from these public policy positions that were clearly against the people of this nation when they chose to embark upon the largest unconsented experiment in New Zealand history um, and to, you know, create hundreds of billions of debt um, through their propaganda campaign and and the rollout of an ineffectual vaccine that doesn't inhibit transmission. And they knew that going into it. The, the cancer treatment industry, I don't know if, is that a, can we call it an industry? I, I think it probably is oh, an industry. You can absolutely call it an industry. Okay. You know, yeah. Richard Nixon declared war on cancer. This is the only disease process that has actually had the war powers of the American government put into its research and, and de- development of treatment. But where most of that has gone is into pharmaceutical Um, research and what happens. And I used to work in, in an academic facility and, you know, you have really great scientists that come up with amazing solutions and then their small company is bought out by a big company. And then the big company controls when that is released to the, to the public. And then, you know, like cabazapinib has been floating, floating around for a very long time, very effective drug, but, Pfizer didn't want to release it or, you know, whichever company they, they wanted to hold on to it for a while, kind of like the steam driven car or the Tesla, all of the, this technology has been available for a very yeah. long time, but it's been suppressed because of bigger corporate interests. They, they, they don't want the simple, uh, I'm picking, you know, to, to preserve the industry and the, um, yeah. the ecosystem of it. They don't want an ambulance at the top of the cliff. They want, no. they want it. No. They want it in a hole at the bottom of the cliff. They want to that, be. That's it. Right. They want to maximize their profits for their shareholders by using a patented drug for as long as possible. And when it's no longer patented, then they do careful, carefully designed statistical manipulations that show that, oh, this new product that where we moved this methyl group to a different position, it works so much better than the old one. So now we can still charge, you know, 10,000 a month for this cancer drug. And, and then people get their hopes up. And if we don't give access to that drug, then then Pharmac gets a whacking. And, you know, there's there's a whole lot of manipulation that goes on by industry in this space. You have well-meaning doctors who are trying to advocate for their patients. But, you know, then you find out they've been sort of used and their testimony sort of usurped by industry to enforce an emotional response by our, yeah. our regulators. And, um, you know, it's it's. It's a very difficult thing because you want to have 
broad access to effective drugs, but at the same time, you have a responsibility to the public purse. And in, in America, we, we've just, it's been no holes barred and um, the war powers are there. And since the Flexner report in 1910, our medical doctors have basically sort of been co-opted behind the scenes by the things that medical schools actually teach them. You know, most doctors get no training in nutrition and they immediately react with suspicion and uncertainty when we start talking about personal empowerment and vitamins that might be needful for maintenance of health, especially when people are busy and stressed and, and not paying attention. And then we have these little entertainment boxes so that people can be perpetually distracted from what they actually need to be paying attention to. And, you know, it, we have the perfect prescription now for chronic illness. And to me, the way forward is for people to reclaim what they can and, and then to trust the government and we have to restore tr that trust before we can mm. trust them again. Seems like we have a to restore big job. trust in government. Yeah. And then we have to be able to allow them to do certain things that people can't do on their own. People will have accidents. They will need surgeries. They will yeah. need radiation yeah. therapy from time to time because it is life-saving. People are very afraid of it, but when it's used judiciously, it can actually cure cancer, it relieve pain. It can do a whole mm -hmm. lot of good things. So I live very comfortably in the space of personal empowerment, but also, you know, keeping the mainstream therapies and helping people to find confidence in that. Because I think most of the cancer doctors in New Zealand are, are really quite good. It's just that they've been sort of pigeonholed into one way of thinking, and they don't actually have the time and resource to talk to people about personal empowerment. And so that's kind of where I come in, in that space. I no longer practice as an oncologist um, by choice, but I like to help people find their way into a place where they can actually um, find a pathway to secondary cancer prevention. I don't see anyone who hasn't had cancer usually, but, um, yeah, but the key it's, it's is to, to help them not to grow any more cancer. And what happened to us the last three years could not have happened unless we were made to be afraid and we were deprived of our support systems. We were isolated. We were played, you know, fear inducing propaganda Boy. over and over and over again. Yeah. And, and they put us in a perpetual state of fear. So then just like Helsinki syndrome, even though there are captors, they could appear to be our rescuers and we loved them for a while until we realized how badly they had treated us. I think a few people are waking up to that right now, Anna. Hey, that was um, great to start off because we'll do some other talks about, like I say, if you don't mind, more specific. Oh, I, I'd love to, answers. Paul. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here and to to chat to your audience. It's it's really a privilege. Yeah, nice to have you. Thanks so much for, for coming on, Dr. Anna Goodwin, and we'll talk again soon, all right? Thank you, Paul. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.